You're listening to a teaching from Get the Word Out and Mary Jean Powers. For more information and audio content, visit www.getthewordout.cc. So let's talk about Job. Job, oh my goodness, what a story, huh? Theologians have been arguing about this for ever since Job. Uh, so we know historically that the story of Job happened sometime during the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which we don't have a timeline for, so that really gives us nothing. We know that, we know that the story of Abraham was about 4,000 years ago, and it was before that. That's what, that's what we have to go on with there. So ancient literature, poetic literature, written in a literary poetic style, kind of like a drama script, kind of. Uh, so we know that we can not take it literally, when, because it's poetic wisdom literature, we don't take it literally, we take it like we did eighth grade poetry, right? I mean, do you remember when they introduced poetry in eighth grade and you thought, you want me to interpret? You want me to interpret what a guy who lived 500 years ago, a man who lived five, meant when he used these words? You want me to do that and get graded on it? <laughs> I think not. But we do need to understand that in poetic literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those five, that we, we can take as eternal truths those things that are consistent with all the rest of the word. That makes sense? So if it's consistent in that testament with those same writers as well as in the other testament and consistent as eternal truths for God's nature and his character all the way through, then we can take those and hold on to it. Uh, other than that, it's a, it is really a great story to teach us some things about human nature and to teach us some things about ourselves. So Job was this guy who was blessed in amazing ways, every way, and then he lost animals, servants, sons, daughters, and houses. So in the book of Job, chapter 1, let me read from you, starting with verse 13. Uh, it says, One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off, and they put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one left who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came up and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them and they're dead and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And at this Job got up and he tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Then we go further in the story, and Job loses his health. 
Listen to this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of the broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. At that point, he probably wished the Lord had taken her too. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) My own interpretation. (laughs) Don't write that down. (laughs) And, (laughs) And Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. We say that Job lost everything in every way. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bilbab the Shuite, so far the Naathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes, they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they couldn't even recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. We say that Job lost everything, but he didn't. He didn't lose his community. He didn't lose either either God didn't give Satan permission to attack that, his community. Or maybe the accuser didn't ask. But he didn't lose his community. And the rest of the story is about what they experienced in the community. So our first inclination when someone is in grief is what? Fix it, right? How do we make them feel better? How do I make you feel better? What else? First inclinations. Make them laugh. Make them laugh, okay? Make them forget. forget. Distract them or take them away from the setting. What else? Bring them food. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Nothing like a casserole. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have... Then we have those brilliant, I say sarcastically, comments. Ooh, did you hear the ripple? The We have the words of encouragement. It's always darkest before it gets light. Don't you want to just slug somebody who says that? You get to be with them for eternity. makes me squint. This is the worst of the worst of all stupid comments in the world. God just needed another flower in his garden. (laughs) Why did Hallmark ever allow that? Ever. Time heals all. Then give me time away from you. Be happy that your loved one is at peace right now. Come on, just be happy. And the, li- the comments go on and on and on, don't they? And we, what do you do? What do you do with that? I 
know what I have done in the past, but it's not always socially acceptable to do those things. These kinds of statements make us feel as though our feelings are invalid. And that is not helping the grieving process, the mourning process, or the healing process, is it? It simply is not helping. We want to do something helpful. We want to cheer them up. Maybe we just need to sit. Because what brilliance could we come up with anyway when we don't fully understand someone's process? We need to be with them. Meet practical needs where it's possible. Listen, 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 listen. Allow them the freedom to say, to show whatever is going on, whatever way they need to process their loss, or just sit in silence. It's what Job's friends did. In the midst of his grief and his suffering and his pain, they came and they sat. Also, one thing we learn about grief in this and get permission for is that Job had an insatiable desire to tell his story. Didn't he? He went on and on and on and on and on for chapters about, well, this is who I am and this is what I've done and this is the, and all that was going on in his head about that, and they gave him space too. I was with a friend yesterday who's, uh, her best friend, has experienced more grief and loss than just about any story I, anybody's story I've ever heard. And she said, my, my friend said, she just keeps telling the same stories over and over and over and over. Well, man, if that's what it takes, why not? You're her best friend after all. Listen. And what we don't need to say is, Already heard that one. Already heard that. We'll go there. Doesn't help anything. Job's friends took the time and the space to listen. Each person's grief is as unique as their fingerprint. But what everyone has in common is that no matter how they grieve, they share a need for their grief to be witnessed. The need is for someone to be fully present to the magnitude of their loss without trying to point out the silver lining. Our grief needs to be acknowledged. In fact, I wrote it down this way. Our survival is dependent on someone being available to be truly present for us. Otherwise, our suffering is intensified even more. So culturally, we've minimized this. We fumble. We're awkward. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We want to clean it up and fix it so we can move on. But life will never move on with the whole. Our perspective will forever be changed. We will get healed. Life will normalize again, but never like it was. I'm reminded by the verse that Paul gives us in Galatians where he said, carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
This is what we do. It's what we've been redeemed for. Carrying one another's burdens. To learn to rejoice with those who rejoice. To mourn with those who mourn. To sit in silence when people don't need to be fixed. To meet practical needs. But to carry one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Because is that not what he came for? He came as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he took our grief upon him. Not just our sin, but our suffering. <coughs> and he took our loneliness. And he took our processes. He, he took our guilt that so often accompanies grief. What I didn't say, what I did say that was so wrong, what I didn't do, what I did do. He took these things and he became, Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, our guilt offering to lift that off of us. And so then Jesus says, and go and do likewise. Carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the whole reason I came. That's Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, by the way. So, grief is designed to actually unite us, not isolate us. Yet it often divides us, doesn't it? Don't need to be fixed. Don't need questions to be answered. We just need to be with. Often, we need to be with. So in the midst of Job's grieving and his loss, his friends came. They cried. They grieved. They sat. I have been convicted by this. Have I been too quick to give hope? Too quick to turn the corner, to want people to turn the corner to hope, and always say, say but? Too quick when we need to sit. Do we get frustrated because the people who are grieving are not logical or reasonable in what they're saying? Do we let them do we need to let them be illogical and unreasonable for a time and still be with them and not give up with them? Do we get impatient when they repeat themselves? Do we react and want them to just get over it already? In the midst of Job's grief and loss, his friends came and they sat. So let's talk about the theology of this a little bit because it's one thing to have a loss on a various different levels. It's quite another to be very confused about God in the midst of our loss. Particularly, well, I wrote it down this way. If we have a, th a strong theology around suffering and our circumstances challenge our beliefs, we have everything to review at that point. If we have no previous theology about suffering, loss, and loss and death, there's everything to consider. <laughs> One way or the other, our theology gets, gets hammered a little bit, doesn't it? So sometimes we feel as though we have lost trust in God because God, here's the operable word, allowed the thing to happen. And we're so vulnerable, but it's normal to, ch to challenge these things. It's normal to review and to ask again. It may take a long time, it may take a short time, but it's normal. The faith that arises from a deep personal search inspired by grief is often deeper and stronger than a faith that was never questioned at all. 
I eventually concluded that just because God wasn't the God I had imagined or that I wanted, in other words, a God that prevented pain and tragedy, God was still real, still good, and still loving, and I had to let go of my narrow image of who God was or should be and get to know God as he is. I couldn't have borrowed that conclusion from anyone, no matter how much I trusted or respected them. I had to meet God in my own dark night. So when walking with people with grief, we must not impose our beliefs about God on them, but we must love them with the love of God. We love with the love of God without getting into the mess of their theology until it's time. And there may be a time for us, but that time may come for someone else to address that. But when someone is deep in mourning and grief, that may not be the time for a deep theological discussion. Because there won't be many ears to hear when you're emotionally spent. But we can bring them back to he's good and he's God and he's worth hanging in there with. Let's do that. Different people are ready for different things at different times. So how much more important for us to be sensitive to Holy Spirit, not just with others, but with ourselves and give ourselves the grace to be very human and in process. So we live in a very broken world. God is good and everything is redeemable. Our story from Job teaches us that we are not meant to grieve entirely alone. We're not meant to heal entirely alone. And in fact, we're not meant to relearn how to live and to see our life restored alone. Job's, Job's story gives us that. Job argued with his friends. He defended himself. He argued with God. Uh, he talked a lot. And then when at the very end, when Job came, or when the Lord came and confronted Job, he also confronted Job's friends, which I think is also a cool part of the story. <laughs> Listen to this. This is all the way in chapter 42, the last chapter of Job, starting with verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, and this is the one we usually focus on, right? My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise and repent in dust and ashes. That's what Job said. But then it says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Because they gave Job the pat answers. They said, I, I could be way wrong here, but it seems to me in reading the story, they said the right things about God, but they didn't say what God wanted Job to hear. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Maybe they weren't quite the sensitive friends. They were there, they were friends, but maybe the sensitivity was lacking a little bit. So now take seven bulls and seven rams, Job, and go to my, or uh, Elias, and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. In other words, deal with your insensitivity. <laughs> interpretation. My servant Job will pray for you. There's a twist. Mm -hmm. And I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. 
They did some things really right. They did some things really wrong. You have not spoken of me what is right, the Lord said, as my servant Job has. Wow. So they did what the Lord told them. I'll bet they did. So they did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now, here's one thing I have learned in grief, and it just irritates, my, mo my mother would have said, irritates the fire out of me. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Uh, Sometimes we have to teach people how to help us, how to come alongside us when we're grieving. Why don't they just know? <laughs> Why don't they just do it right to begin with? But we need to, we need to, our community, we need to say, this is what I need. I wish we didn't have to, but it's part of being in community to make ourselves known. And sometimes we just need to say, this is what I need. We need to be the ones to teach people how to love us well. We need the, to be the ones, unfortunately sometimes, to minister to them. I don't know about you, but that makes me angry. <laughs> Just being honest, I was at a funeral last week. 36-year-old woman, died of cancer, left a husband and two autistic children. Her dad was a pastor for years, he's a retired pastor. And to watch him go around the crowd, and it was not a small crowd, and comfort people at the funeral was really something. To watch him, tears streaming down his face, to put his arm around somebody who was also crying and cry with them. Tears streaming down his face to say, it is so hard, I don't know what I'm gonna do. But God bless you, he sees us, he knows us, and to share the, the us-ness of that, I don't often see that. He was teaching them how to mourn. Culturally, we are ill-equipped at best. And so sometimes we need to be very open and painfully honest and say to others, this is what I need right now. Will you please do something about it? Mom, can I just jump in too? Please. I think what you're sharing is so right, and I think with our kids, we need to do this. I teach Hunter, I have to teach Hunter how to love me, and I have to show him how to grieve with me when I'm grieving loss. And I think we sometimes think it's protecting them mm -hmm. as our community and as our family to leave them out of it, but mm -hmm. it's actually not. I, I feel like it's detrimental to them yeah. to not know my grief Yes. And share it with me. This is so, so important. Thank you, Tara. Thank you. So, did Joe miss his kids? Yes. Of course. Did he miss his house and all of his stuff and, and were, his, were his fortunes gone? Yeah. Was their great loss tremendous? Did he wish for the good old days? Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Were Job's fortunes restored? Yeah. How? After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house, and they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Maybe that would be good protocol for every funeral. <laughs> you got to laugh about something, you guys. <laughs> 
The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had, and then the list goes on of all this stuff, and his daughters, and nowhere in the world. <laughs> After this, Job lived 140 years. Through what filter? Acquainted with grief. And he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. Lord help us. <laughs> Spare me. <laughs> so he died, old and full of years. Grief changes us, you guys, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Grief changes us in a big way. It's not the experience of loss that is most important. It's our response to it. We know that. We've been told that a thousand times. If anybody's ever been in a counselor's office, they have heard that line. It's not what happened to you, it's how you're gonna respond. And then we get so, so hurt. And we need to learn to walk through the process. But grief changes us. Something ends, something new begins. We have to learn in the newness how to live again, but now with the grief at the same time, with this feeling, with the emptiness. Listen to this. A researcher tells about the power of community and change that she experienced working in the northern indigenous villages of Australia. Here's what she said. When someone dies, everyone in the village moves a piece of furniture or something else from their house into their yard. And the next day when the bereaved family wakes up and looks outside, they see that everything has changed since their loved one died, not just them, not just for them, but for everyone. That's how these communities witness and mirror grief. They are showing in a tangible way that someone's death matters. The loss is made visible. Because if I'm in a relationship with you and you have tremendous loss, our relationship is going to change somehow or other. It just will. Our conversations change. It changes us. Grief changes us. Who am I now? Who am I now without this job? Who am I now without parents? Who am I now without this child? Who, who am I now? It changes us. So we ask the question, how long will we grieve? How long will the loved one be gone? That's how long. How long will we grieve? Well, if you're grieving your health, how long will your health be diminished? But even when you get your health back, if you get your health back, we still have a new filter. We have a new level of compassion. We have a new level of Mercy, even for ourselves. After the first year, the pain lessens, but then resurfaces when it's triggered. I'll never forget the person. I'll never forget the potential opportunity. You may some morning wake up and feel exactly like you did the day of the loss. That's normal. It's okay. But the longer we go, as we walk with community, as we walk with Jesus, as we sit with Jesus in our sadness, as we forgive, 
The pain will last a shorter time, be a little less intense. We'll get over things more quickly. But you won't completely get over the void, will we? We won't. It will always be there. So practical ways, I'm just going to shoot these off very quickly. Practical ways that we can mourn. Practical ways. <clears throat> stories. Oh my goodness, stories. Tell them, write them down, videotape them. Funny stories, sad stories, sarcastic stories, real stories. Stories heal. Stories heal. Stories help us not forget the person or the change that happened and why we are like we are now. They keep things real. Verbalize frustrations and sadness with the Lord. We have got to learn to verbally process with Jesus. We just do. We just do. Pour out our hearts. That's what David did. That's the whole Psalms thing. Uh, my counselor used to encourage me, stop. Stop. Just stop everything and feel the sadness when you need to. Stop and sit with your sadness. Face it, call it what it is, invite Jesus into the process. Photos, photos are a huge help. I sat for two weeks after mom died and, and just went, mom was the queen of reprints, oh my goodness. We had so many reprints and I just sorted, so healing for me. Thanksgiving, we tend to focus on how the, the loss happened instead of the life that was there before. Yeah, and if we get stuck in that and focus on how the death happened, how the loss happened, instead of the life that was there before, we won't heal very well at all. So we are, uh, we are thankful for the li a life well lived or an opportunity that was there or for the experience. What is the old Hallmark card said? It was better to have loved than lost. <laughs> I never to have loved at all. A lot of truth in that honestly, <laughs> because loving is what shapes us. It's what shapes us, even if it was loving a thing or a pet or whatever. If the love was real, the grief will be real, and the change will happen. Revisit places. That's a cool one. Revisit places that, that trigger and help us process and sort through all of these things can, can be done with people or, or by ourselves. Uh, if you're going to do it with people, make sure they're people who get it and who love you, you know, or who will love you well. Journaling, huge. Uh, routine is helpful. As long as we say no to what can be said <coughs> no to, to allow space for grief. But routine is good. Uh, we've all heard this one, keep from making major decisions too, too soon. Um, I was working with a woman the other day whose husband unexpectedly died. And she said, you know, I'm going to sell the house. But we were already planning to sell the house. So it's not like she started mm -hmm. to, to, that was the beginning of the process was after he died. They had already decided to do that. Um, be honest with yourself and invite your community to be honest with you and all of these things. Uh, are you spending too much time alone? You know, sometimes you don't need to really be with anybody. You just need to go to a restaurant and sit in the middle so people are around. Sit there by yourself, just so people are around. 
and hopefully none of them are weird enough to come up and talk to you if they know you or not. Hopefully nobody you know is there. But sometimes you just need to hang around. I have noticed with me and my grief that I walk a lot and have for 40 years in Longmont, and I choose my neighborhood carefully when I'm grieving. Where I walk makes a huge difference for me. Will it be through parks? Will it be out in the countryside? Will it be through a residential area, a poorer area, or a more affluent area? Makes a real big difference. Even where I drive when I'm grieving, it makes a difference. Uh, so experiment if you don't know. Ask Holy Spirit to help you. He knows you better than you know yourself. <laughs> whatever you do, don't pull away from your community to whatever kind of relationship you have had with your community. If it's a healthy community, if it's not healthy, pull away. Uh, Set yourself up to be with people who will be attentive to you, who will listen, who will give time. Just some practical things that I have found that really helps. Uh, what we will find is that sa sadness will soften us. The sadness will gradually fade, but it will always feel familiar. Does that make sense? Yeah? I graduate, this is, something, this is something my grief counselor really helped me with. I graduate from sitting with a lifestyle of sadness to a lifestyle of acceptance. That helped me, helped me process. Acceptance cannot be forced, but it will eventually settle in me as I allow it to naturally move through my soul. And by mourning the losses, I will gain a new view on my past. And oddly enough, on my future, as I let the sadness move through my soul, we're created for that. We're created to let these emotions move through us and not develop the lifestyle of depression, sadness, anxiety, those things, but to allow it to move through. We're humans. Body, soul, and spirit, mind, will, and emotions. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for making us human. Thank you for making us people of process. Thank you for making us in your image with capacity to feel, to feel deeply. But also, thank you for the capacity to heal. We're grateful for the communities we do have. And we ask you, for all of our sakes, will you strengthen our communities? Will you, will you bring hope to our communities that we can extend to each other? Would you deepen our communities as we are open and honest and share our lives together. Thank you, Father, for practical ways to mourn the grief that we so deeply feel. And we admit we come to you wounded, but you are a healer and you are a restorer and you have made a way where there doesn't seem to be any way And so broken, we come and we ask, 
Please heal. Please restore. Please comfort us. Because you know us so well and you know exactly what we need. So we trust you. You hold our hearts in your hands and we know you will be gentle and kind and sensitive. But we also know that you want us to move forward and move on from here. So we surrender to you. We will say yes to you and to the healing process. We will say yes to you and to the human process. And we look forward. We look forward to learning to live in new ways, changed ways, with new perspective and new sensitivity to others. So thank you for being a father with a plan, a good plan, for the good of your children. In Jesus' name, amen.